Welcome to Fantastic History. I'm Sarah. And I'm Clay. We're a husband and wife duo who enjoy telling each other about amazing events, people, and mysteries throughout history. In my last episode, I got a little taste of true crime talking about Claude Duvall's life. And guys, I'm sorry. I just need to fully indulge this and tell some murder stories today. Okay. But they're not just any murder stories. I'm going to tell you guys today about a pair of serial murders whose crimes were about like two to three hundred years apart. But I still think that they were soulmates because their methods and their motives were like very much aligned. Oh. Like I'm talking even down to really specific things like the fact that both of them worked with six other co-conspirators each. Okay. Like a lot of the stuff they did was like exactly the same. Hmm. And with both of them, too, folks ardently believed that they had supernatural powers. More specifically, that they were witches. Oh. You know them. You love them. This week, I'm talking about feminist icons, Julia Tofana and Baba Anoika. Hey, I I don't know them. You amaze me. (laughs) Now, I know what you're thinking. Calling a pair of murderesses feminist icons is gross, but let me give you a little more information about their misdeeds and the reasoning behind them, and then at the end we can discuss their merits as feminists. Okay, that's fair. We'll start with Julia Tofana. I got a lot of my information from an article on sci-fi.com, and it has this total banger of a line that I just had to include. This story begins, as all truly terrifying horror stories do, with unchecked patriarchy. Ooh. Yeah. So Julia was born in Palermo in the south of Italy sometime around 1620. So like literally around the time the pilgrims landed in America to give uh, our American listeners a, a good time frame there. Yeah. And that was famously not a great time period for women's rights. So if you were a woman in the 17th century, you basically weren't a person. You had no agency for yourself. You were the property of either your father or your husband. There were exactly three things a woman could be at this time. A wife, a sex worker, or a widow. Longtime listeners might remember that we touched on a similar issue back in our Lizzie Borden episode, and her infamous crime took place in 1892, so like this was an issue women were facing for a very, very long time. Yeah. The path of least resistance would seem to be getting married and like waited out, hoping to become a widow sooner than later. But the problem there is that you don't even get to pick who you're married to. Your dad picks them for you because it's mm. a property transfer. Right. And even if your dad picks one of the good guys, you still don't get a say in the direction that your life takes from there because it would never occur to your husband that you have wants and needs of your own. And I'm sure this goes without saying, but sex work was even more dangerous. Not only are you more apt to end up with STIs for which there was no cure or even treatment, but like, do you really think the men at this time were treating a sex worker better than they treated their wives? Like, yeah, probably not. Definitely not. Yeah. So obviously, of the three options, the thing most women truly aspired to be was a widow. That's the only way you're getting any sort of freedom or control over your own life. If you outright murder your husband, you're going to end up in jail or executed, and you don't want that. 
kind of defeats the whole purpose. So you need a way of getting rid of him that's not super obvious. Messy. This is... <laughs> Tough being a girl, man. Yeah. But hey, enter Julia. She knew firsthand that these matters had to be handled delicately, saying as her own mother, Thofania D'Amato, was executed in 1633 after being found guilty of the murder of her husband. She, uh, Julia, traveled around the country for a while, earning her bachelor's degree from the School of Hard Knocks, where she majored in chemistry. Wait. <laughs> <laughs> Did I get you? Yes. Great. Uh, back in Palermo a few years later, Julia sets up a business for women by women where she sells cosmetics. Okay. Her best-selling item was a tincture called Manna of St. Nicholas of Bari. Sold in either liquid or powder form, it was marketed as a healing balm for blemishes and maintaining a youthful glow. Hmm. Now, while I don't know how effective it was at meeting those claims, its main ingredients of lead arsenic and belladonna were certainly guaranteed to improve your fortunes Mm. all of a sudden husbands young and old started falling sick all across palermo yep unhappy wives tired of being treated like chattel were killing their husbands with a cosmetic that became known as aqua tofana oh the best part about it was that it was basically iocane powder from the princess bride it had (laughs) no smell and no taste you could mix it into anything that was going to be ingested. They'd never know what hit them. Wow. According to the Chamber's Journal, administered in wine or tea or some other liquid by the flattering traitoress, it produced but a scarcely noticeable effect. The husband became a little out of sorts, felt weak and languid, so little indisposed that he would scarcely call in a medical man. After the second dose of poison, this weakness and languor became more pronounced. The beautiful woman who expressed so much anxiety for her husband's indisposition would scarcely be an object of suspicion and perhaps would prepare her husband some food as prescribed by the doctor with her own fair hands. In this way, the third drop would be administered and would prostrate. No, it would not. It would prostrate. Even (laughs) (laughs) it's going to get him in the prostate, but it would prostrate even the most vigorous man. The doctor would be completely puzzled to see that the apparently simple ailment did not surrender to his drugs. And while he would still be in the dark as to its nature, other doses would be given until at length death would claim the victim for its own. Hmm. So it was a brilliant scheme. Not only was the poison given like an innocuous sounding name like Manna of St. Nicholas, but those three lethal ingredients, lead, arsenic, and belladonna, were actually very common ingredients in cosmetics at that time. Really? Oh, yeah. So even if for some reason, like, people got suspicious and started combing through the wife's beauty products, even reading the label on Aquatofana would not raise any alarms. Wow. Yep. But Julia had spent a lot of time studying chemistry after her mother's death, and she'd experimented until she found the perfect combination of household items to create a quick, undetectable death. Nobody else knew, but Julia sure did. Mm -hmm. Doctors at the time weren't exactly running toxicology screens at the time, so, like, there's not that to worry about, and medical knowledge was relatively primitive in general. So even as the bodies stacked up in and around Palermo, nobody suspected poisoning or murder at all. 
the you know com- what they were? Exp- oh yeah. So like most people thought, like that these husbands were dropping dead of some new gastrointestinal disease, hmm. because like it was it was in kind of flowery language, um, reading from the Chambers Journal. But it's like the first dose. Like, he feels a little weak, a little lethargic, eh, not so good. So, he calls the doctor. The doctor's like, I'm sure it's fine. Just, like, get a little rest. Have your wife make you a nice soup. You'll be fine. The wife makes a nice soup, puts in the second dose. Yeah. And and it just it gets a little worse, a little worse, a little worse until it's, like, cannot get any worse. Right. So the upside of this is because the poison took about three to four doses. If the doctor is called more than once, he's going to see like, oh, this disease you had originally is progressing. So he's not going to really think too much of it because the symptoms are kind of the same, but just getting worse and worse. Yeah. Well, that gives them like enough time to go to the wife and say, your husband is dying. You need to help him get his affairs in order, like get him with the priest, make sure his like will or whatever is taken care of, which is great because the husband is so sick and so weak that like it's kind of left entirely to the wife to help him, you know, decide what's going to be written in the will. And, you know, it, it just so happens that, you know, the wife is going to be like, oh, well, obviously he wanted to leave all of his, you know, earthly goods to me. Of course. Bing pot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, who else is going to be? Who else is who, who else is that going to fall on? Right, and like then, because we're in the 1600s here, the normal thing would be if the husband has no male heirs, then it passes on to like his brother, his nephew, like somebody else, another man in the family, like. For those of you who watched Downton Abbey, like that was kind of the how things kicked off in the in the very beginning of the series, is that um, Lord Grantham had no male heir; mm-hmm. he just had his nephew. So, but if it's his last wishes, this man says in writing, "I leave everything to my wife." Well, then everything goes to her. Yeah, nothing we can do about that. Oopsie poopsie. Demand became so high that Julia could no longer maintain the supply on her own and ended up bringing in some help in the form of her daughter, a few members of her close circle, and a priest. Wow. Because a priest, if a doctor sees that someone is dying, we're talking about Italy. They're calling in a priest to hear your last confession so that you'll get into heaven, you'll skip, you know, that pesky purgatory step, like, gotta take care of your eternal soul here. So she gets a priest in on the operation so that no priest is coming around raising an alarm bell. Like, whoa, all (laughs) these guys are dying. That's weird. That makes sense. Yeah. Very smart. Her new employees helped not just with making the product, but with vetting the clientele as well. Because you can't trust just anybody with your murder business, right? Their sales were dependent on referrals. People who were already known to Julia and the other members of the team or people who past customers vouched for like you couldn't just be some jackrabbit off the street and expect to come in and get aqua tofana gotcha because then you're a liability unfortunately even with all these safety measures in place this sort of major operation can't go on forever without the wheels falling off 
Eventually, one of Julia's customers got cold feet after putting the first dose of Aquatafana in her husband's soup. The second she begged him not to eat it, the jig was up. Mm -hmm. Because why are you now begging me with tears in your eyes not to eat this food that you just made for me? That's kind of odd. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this husband and wife went to the police and ratted Julia out. While being tortured, Julia confessed to having killed at least 600 men between the years 1633 and 1651. Which sounds buck wild, right? Yeah. And it is. But like that averages out to about three per month. So not even one a week. And this is like a business. So like that's yeah. just like an interesting way to look at it. Like I killed 600 people is bananas. Like that is mm-hmm. crazy. Yeah. But when you look at it from a business perspective, you're not even making one sale a week. Like, come on, girl. Well, one, she wasn't directly doing anything to these people. Right. Two, that's a lot of customers. Yeah. Actually. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is. My gosh. I mean, but you also have to figure this is like a seven person enterprise, like Julia and her six partners. So like, you know, I feel like cash was probably a little bit tight if you think about it like that. I don't know. You got to pay the bills. Yeah. <clears throat> There's a few contradictory accounts about what happened to Julia after her arrest and torture, but it's generally believed she and all of her associates were executed in Rome in 1659. From there, working mostly from a list of suspicious deaths, dozens of other women were either exiled, jailed, or hanged under suspicion of murdering their husbands with aqua tofana. An interesting tidbit is that over a century after Julia's death, Aquatofana was still very much part of the cultural consciousness, to the point where none other than Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart believed someone had poisoned him with it while he was composing his final requiem. Oh. According to statements taken from loved ones who were present at his deathbed, he began to speak of death and asserted that he was setting the requiem for himself. I feel definitely, he continued, that I will not last much longer. I am sure I have been poisoned. I cannot rid myself of this idea. Someone has given me aqua tofana and calculated the precise time of my death. Dang. Interestingly enough, he might have been right. What? There's still debate over what killed Mozart. Like, we still don't know why he died. He could have been poisoned. Oh, That's crazy. Yeah. Now, with that in mind, let's jump to Malovac, Romania. Uh, Yay. In 1838, to witness the birth of Anna Drakshin, who would later be known as Baba Anoika. Her father, a wealthy cattleman, moved the family to Vladimirovac in modern-day Serbia when Anna was about 11 years old. Because she came from a family of means, she received a surprisingly well-rounded education considering she was a girl in the 1800s. As you might have guessed, she especially excelled in math and chemistry. Hmm. When she was around 20 years old, things took a bit of a turn. She fell in love with an officer in the Austrian army, and I'm talking like truly madly deeply. (laughs) This was a big deal. Unfortunately, though perhaps predictably, he soon turned out to be a bit of a shit. He ghosted her, 
leaving her with a broken heart and syphilis. Oh. Yeah. A lot of people believe that's where her raging case of misandry began. As it would. Yeah, I'd say so. That being said, though, she didn't give up on love after one bad experience. Not long after, she met a nice older man whom she agreed to marry. They ended up having 11 children together, though 10 of them did not survive into adulthood. Mm. That's a level of unbearable tragedy I can't even begin to imagine. Yeah. But she and her husband managed to persevere and remained married for about 20 years or so before he died. Which was not, it was not like a suspicious, sudden thing necessarily. He was much older than her. Okay. With no husband and only one son to take care of, Anna had a lot of time on her hands. She used that time to further her education. In her abundant spare time, she learned five different languages and also set up a little chemistry lab in her house so she could tinker with her former passion. It's a little bit Hedy Lamar, who you guys might remember had a chemistry lab in her trailer, courtesy of Howard Hughes. Yeah. Just like I got my little, like almost my little play set that I use just like in my downtime for fun. It's not my (laughs) serious lab. This is my fun lab. Anna wasn't trying to figure out frequency hopping or how to make Coca-Cola more accessible, though. She started out as a healer. She was a genius when it came to chemistry, natural aptitude off the charts. So she developed healing potions and ointments that she then sold to sick people in her village. It was like mostly a farming community. So a lot of farmers' wives are coming like, my husband is sick, our farmhands are injured, like just kind of that's the vibe. Mm Mm-hmm. She ended up, like, even hiring a maid whose job was just to go around and do marketing. Like, as she got older, she's not getting out as much or she's very busy in the lab. So she has somebody who would go out into the village and, like, basically eavesdrop on every conversation. As soon as somebody complained of any kind of sickness or injury, the maid would pop up like, Oh, yes, hello. I know just the woman you need to see about this. (laughs) Oh, my God. All right. Great. Yeah. The trouble started with men trying to avoid being conscripted into military service. As we learned way, way back in episode four with Attila Ambrus, joining the army for a couple of years was compulsory in Eastern Europe. The only exception was young men who were deemed not fit for service. People figured, well, if Anna knows how to make us better, maybe she also knows how to make us just sick enough to dodge the draft i see and they were right she knew how to bring somebody right to death's door without them actually crossing the threshold she never killed someone by accident ever Hmm. yeah her other bestseller was what she referred to as love potion ah yes it contained mercury arsenic hemlock and belladonna oh wait Uh uh-huh What's interesting about her as compared to Julia Tofana is that she knew so much about chemistry that she literally had poisoning down to a science. When approached by a woman whose husband was an abusive piece of human refuse, Anna would famously ask, how heavy is the sacrifice? Oh my goodness. Which I fucking love that line. <laughs> oh my God. I want that on a shirt. Like it's so good with like her face on it. Oh geez. Uh-huh. 
She would then use the intended victim's weight to determine exactly how much of which ingredients to use to cause them to drop dead in exactly eight days. The dose only had to be administered once, and he will die eight days from that day. Mm. Wowie. Yeah. Naturally, it's around this time that people start to refer to her as the Witch of Vladimirovac, or, when you knew better than to talk shit to this woman's face... Baba Anoika, which roughly translates to Grandmother Annie. Okay. I'll show you a picture of her um, when we're done. And guys, of course, I'll post this on our Instagram. But she was the cutest little grandmother. (laughs) Now, (laughs) what you get is almost an exact copy of what happened with Julia in Palermo about 200 years before. Because believe it or not, there were a lot of women in Baba Anoishka's village who weren't being treated well by their husbands. Sure. There was one woman in particular in Vladimirovac named Stana Momorov, who was actually a repeat customer and ended up inadvertently bringing the whole enterprise to the ground. Oh, man. Yeah. Stana purchased a love potion when her first husband turned out to be a garbage monster And she was so satisfied with the results that a few years later, she came back two more times for Love Potion to get rid of her new father-in-law, and then not long after that, to get rid of her father-in-law's brother. Wow. The fact that these three men died in exactly the same way after being around this one particular woman was, you know, pretty suspicious. I'd say so. Yeah. Yeah. Stana was arrested under suspicion of murder and ended up singing like a canary. Hmm. What you probably don't realize is that when this all went down, it was 1929 and Baba Anoika was 90 years old. Oh, wow. Uh-huh. And still at it. Still at it. And she, again, this picture, you guys, oh my God. She <laughs> is like the cutest, sweetest little grandma you've <laughs> ever seen in your whole life. She's got her little headscarf on. She's got these big guileless eyes like a basset hound. Just sweet looking old lady. Murderer. Uh, it wasn't enough to convince <laughs> a jury, though. And for her crimes... The poisoning of upwards of 150 men, she was sentenced to life in prison. Now, with her being 90, that's actually a pretty light sentence if you think about it. But what's wild is she didn't even serve life in prison. Like, yeah, they locked her up for about eight years before she got paroled due to being like the oldest person. (laughs) And she spent the last two years of her life as a completely free woman. Like, not even under house arrest. We're not doing probation. Like, she's just out. Because they're like, but she's so cute. So, that was the trick. Mm -hmm. If you're going to get caught for a crime, do it at the very end of your life. Oh, yeah. For sure. I think that's great advice. Like, if you must, wait it out. Sure. So, now, with all that information out there, I want to revisit the idea I mentioned at the top of the episode. That Julia Tofana and Baba Anoika are feminist icons. Right. These were two brilliant women living in a time of extreme social injustice where women were not considered people. 
They both found a way to freedom for themselves and then reached back and held their hand out to dozens and dozens of other women who would have spent the entirety of their lives being treated as objects, being beaten and raped and never getting to make a single decisions for themselves in their entire lives. There was only one way, one way to escape that situation that you had no other choice. And Julia and Anna freed those women. They weren't serial killers out for blood who got off on death and suffering like Bundy or Dahmer. They were righting society's wrongs the only way that was within their power to do. I say we start building statues of Julia and Anna. And if you don't agree with me, I have some love potion for you to try out. Thanks for listening and giving us a little bit of your time today. It's a good ending. Yeah, thank you so much. Hopefully you enjoyed that story. And if you did, please take a second to rate, review, and subscribe on whatever podcast platform you're listening to. Uh, to see that adorable pic of Baba Anoika, um, head on over to Fantastic H Pod on Instagram. Give us a follow over there. Give us some likes. Uh, or you can drop us a line at fantastichistorypod at gmail.com. Until next time. Bye.